Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. 25 of uh, 15, is, as I said, where we left off, so I'll just jump right in. It says, now the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he maintains the widow's boundaries. The Lord uh, tears down the house of the proud, but he maintains the widow's boundaries. As we've seen this again and again in Proverbs and, and throughout the scripture, that the Lord is not a fan of pride. The Lord is not a fan of pride. And it is something that needs to be rooted out of our lives. Now, of course, when we talk about pride, we're not talking about sort of that satisfaction that we have for a job well done. That's not what the Bible is referring to when it says that the Lord hates pride. We're not talking about the pride a parent might have where they, their child has done a good job and they'll say, I'm really proud of you. You did a good job. You worked hard and you're experiencing the results of that. We're talking about a different sort of thing. If you, if you look in the scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for instance, Paul speaks of the pride that he has for the Corinthian believers. So obviously it's not, you can't not have pride in certain things. We're talking about the type of pride. In Galatians chapter 6, he speaks of the pride a person can have Uh, they can exhibit in their various accomplishments. The type of pride that the Lord despises or hates is a pride that stems from self-righteousness or conceit. That's the pride that the Lord continually references when uh, when he would say, I hate pride, or it disgusts me, he'll say a little bit later in our study today. That type of pride is sin. And it's the reason why God uses such strong language, because that sort of pride prevents a person from seeking after him. This is what the psalmist says, Psalm chapter 10. He said, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God, uh, does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, that may not be his words, but that's his thoughts. He's living his life in such a way, I don't need the Lord. And that sort of pride, the Lord hates. Essentially, that sort of pride is self-worship. Because everything then becomes about self and what will be most beneficial to self. And it says that the Lord stands opposed to such thinking. If your entire life is about self and what will be most beneficial to you, the Lord stands opposed to you, it says in the scripture. And you see that opposition here in the verse before us. It says the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he maintains the widow's boundaries. He stands opposed to those who live in pride. And conversely, he defends the cause of the weak, described here as uh, the widow. He defends the cause of the weak or the one that is unable to defend their own cause. God is pleased to protect the weak and stand uh, up for those that are oppressed. Another psalm says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but but the haughty he knows from afar. And so as we're building our lives, as we're taking these uh, messages from the Proverbs, for instance, and trying to establish the type of life we want to live, a life of wisdom, as we do that, we can either stand in opposition to things that God is in opposition to, or we can stand with God and join God and work with him. And this verse teaches us, what we learn from this verse is that those that are defending the cause of the weak are joining God and his work, while those who stand in pride... And you can infer, take advantage of the weak or setting themselves up in opposition to the Lord. So that seems like a no-brainer to me, which side of things we want to be on. Am I correct? It seems pretty obvious. So we let the Lord search our hearts on those matters. Verse 26, it says, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Earlier in our study, 
Solomon told us in verse 8 of chapter 15 that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. In verse 9 of chapter 15, he said, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Here now we learn that the very thoughts of the wicked are also an abomination to the Lord. As human beings, we can only respond to what we see or what we hear. So as we interact with people, we can only respond to what we see they're doing or hear they're saying, things like that. Here, what we see is the Lord is able to go down deep and even see the thoughts and intentions of a man's heart. And he says that the thoughts or the intentions of a man, of a wicked man's heart are an abomination, it says, to the Lord. A person might be able to hide what's really going on down in this area here, but not from the Lord. As it says in the book of Hebrews, truly nothing is hidden from God's sight. Hebrews 4 says, nothing uh, in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sobering verse, isn't it? The Lord sees even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the wise individual, which is what we're seeking to be, we want to be a people that walk with the Lord and walk in the ways of the Lord. A wise individual then is going to allow the Lord to search out even those areas that no one else knows about to make sure that those areas are pure and that they are right before him. And again, we'll, we'll see this a little bit later, but there's that verse that says, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my intentions. I want you to root out any area of iniquity that may be found in me. And it's a wise individual that'll pray such a prayer because God will begin to do a work on the inner man, not just your outer man. Verse 27 says, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Now this is probably speaking of a judge or some kind of a official of sorts that would be willing to accept the bribe. They'd be willing to pervert justice for the right amount of money. Here it says that such a person brings trouble to his own, his own household. Solomon tells us that. And certainly our newspapers tell us that and our, wherever we get it. What is a newspaper these days? Those things, you know, those paper things that used to come to your door. Anywhere where you get your news tells us this, that that official that was willing to sell their vote, so to speak, or to sell their decision for a little bit of money, it always ends up coming back and it troubles their whole household. And so we see that certainly so, not just because Solomon tells us, but we see it from experience. But I, I think this verse, most of us aren't elected officials. Most of us can't sell sort of our uh, decision-making power. I think it goes beyond that, though, into our regular lives. The Lord cares about truth and righteousness in our dealings. The Lord cares about those things. And should we decide, well, you know what, I don't care. He may, but I don't. He will allow the consequences of false dealings to play out. He'll allow those things to play out. And the example here that we have is that it will trouble our own household. Some might think, well, it's a victimless crime, victimless crime, or something like that. No one will even know. It really isn't going to impact anyone. Not only will it impact the person for whom justice was diverted, you didn't treat that person fairly, you diverted justice for them because of the benefit to somebody else, not only is it going to affect that person, but it's going to affect the person that's doing the diverting of the justice, and it's going to affect that person's whole household, as we've seen examples of. And so, so sadly, greed covetousness, those things have proved to be the undoing of so many people. People that were doing well already, and they just needed a little bit more. I just wanted a little bit more. I just wanted to have that thing that I currently don't have. We were talking earlier with the worship team during our pre-prayer time there, 
And as we were, which means we're just sitting around talking, but it sounds really good. Uh, But as we were sitting around talking, somebody pointed out, they just reminded us of Adam and Eve could have had any tree they wanted, but they wanted the one they couldn't have. That's the one that they wanted, greed and covetousness. And they've proven the undoing of so many and have led to the ruin, not only of the person that showed themselves to be greedy, but for their whole household as well. And again, I referenced that, that case I mentioned a little while back of Mark Madoff, the son of Bernie Madoff, and how Mark Madoff's name was synonymous with corruption and greed. And he didn't do anything. But it was so strong upon him, he eventually took his own life because he couldn't get away from it. And it troubled his own household, Bernie Madoff's own household. And so if you're, willing, if you're greedy for gain, if you're willing to do whatever it takes to get ahead, you know this, you're going to bring problems to your home. There's an account in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. It's a story of Achan. They call it the sin of Achan. Perhaps you've heard it expressed that way. And it's about this particular fellow, obviously his name is Achan, and how he became greedy for that which was not his. And how he brought trouble down, not only on his own, upon himself, but on his own household. All because, as it says in that passage there, he saw, he coveted, and he had to have. And he took it. And the most sad thing about the story is he took these things and he went and hid them like in a hole inside of his tent. So I stole all these things. And I couldn't even do anything with them. I couldn't put them up on the mantle because people are in his tent because people are going to say, how'd you get a mantle in your tent? Now, what they're going to say is, they're going to say, where'd you get that? Uh, I couldn't, you know, cash them in and get all the money and buy a new car or something because people are going to say, how'd you afford that? And so he had to take this thing that he wanted so badly and hide it in a hole. It wasn't really worth it. And it destroyed him, and it impacted his family, and it impact, impacted the entire nation of Israel. All because of that, that he, he had to have it. True, truly, as it says, he who is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Verse 28 says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. It certainly sounds familiar. We've heard it four or five times in the book of Proverbs. But again, the wise individual thinks before he speaks. If the Lord's been speaking that to your heart, about the wise individual thinking before he speaks, and every time we've gone through a verse like that over our study of the book of Proverbs, and you haven't gotten it yet, and you're thinking, yeah, it's probably true. I should probably begin to watch what I say. Get it now, please. The wise individual thinks before he speaks. They exercise care with the words that they allow to come out of their mouths, knowing that every careless word which comes forth from their mouth, they will have to give an account for. That's what the scripture says. It says in the book of Matthew, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. And so then we should give careful thought to the words that we allow to come forth. That's what the wise individual does. The one that is seeking to walk in righteousness takes care of what they say and how they say it in their interactions with other people. Not so the wicked though. Look at the rest of the verse. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Whatever comes to mind comes flooding forth and it usually leaves damage in its wake. Things that are going to have to be dealt with later on. It is not a recipe for success and so again we simply remind you think before you speak and take care with the words you allow to come forth. Verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The the scripture's testimony is that the Lord distances himself from those who distance themselves. 
Those that distance themselves from God, the Lord allows himself to remain at a distance from those people. Now, conversely, the book of James tells us this. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you want to go and do your own thing, and you want to run according to your own ways and ignore the wisdom of the counsel of Scripture or other godly individuals that are speaking in your life, you're certainly welcome to do that. You can go any direction in your life that you want to go. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. But you need to know that the decision, that decision has its consequences. The Lord draws near to those that draw near to him, and he withdraws himself from those that withdraw themselves from him. God is near to those that draw near to him. Verse 30, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. I, I think quite simply here, a person's countenance is contagious. It says here they cause the heart to rejoice. Just as good news brings relief and refreshment to the hearer, so can a person's facial expression uh, bring relief or uh, joy to a person's heart. And when you see a person that's at peace, it's written on their face. You can see it in their eyes. And there's something, something infectious about it. Verse 31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. We've seen again and again in our study, Proverbs 9, for instance, it says, give instruction, excuse me, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. We've seen again and again in our study and we're once again reminded here that the only way to grow in wisdom is to seek out wisdom. And the only way to learn from your mistakes is to, to submit yourself to the correction and reproof that come as a result of those mistakes. If you want to grow, then you've got to learn from your errors. You've got to receive reproof. You've got to grow from the correction. Here Solomon says it this way, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. It's the person that recognizes their need to yield to correction. That's the person that will dwell among the wise. Think of it, if you will, as a wisdom hall of fame. And you have all of those that are dwelling there among the wise, so to speak. If you come in humility and you receive correction when you need to be correct, corrected, that's the true path, as it says here, that's the true path to a satisfying life. He calls it a life-giving reproof. As you receive that, that's the true direction or path to a satisfying life. Verse 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Uh, it talks there about instruction. It's more than just teaching. It's a word that is translated many times as correction or as discipline. And so it's more than just general teaching, but it's sort of a teaching associated with being corrected. And so we're talking again here about the same idea that we saw in verse 31 about life giving reproof. We're talking about correction. And so that person, again, that refuses to be corrected or the person that ignores corrective instruction for whatever reason, I don't need to listen to you. I've been a Christian a lot longer than you. Why, why should I listen to you? You're my child. Why should I listen to you? Or I've been around all, all these years and I've read the Bible so many times. Why do I need to listen? The person that refuses corrective instruction does so to their own detriment. You do so to your own detriment. And there are times in our lives where, you know, I got it down. I'm good at learning from others. I'm good at being corrected. And then we sort of start coasting. And we think we don't need to be corrected any longer. We don't need to learn anymore. We don't need to be challenged by the word of God or in our studies or by other people in our lives. That's a mistake. 
And you do that to your detriment. You do it to your own hurt. Notice here, Solomon uses this interesting phraseology. He says, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. To ignore instruction, it, you must despise yourself if you would do such a thing to yourself as ignore instruction. Who else would do such a thing? If you'd be willing uh, to commit such a self-destructive act, you must despise yourself. But the wise individual, the one that, that is gaining in intelligence, they are listening, they're evaluating, they're processing, all with the goal that they might grow in wisdom. And because they're doing that, you know what? They will grow in wisdom. That's the promise of the word here. Verse 33, it says, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. The fear of the Lord and humility. The fear of the Lord is the discipline that leads to wisdom and humility is the pathway that leads to honor. Before honor, there must always be humility. Otherwise, what will happen is we will convince ourselves that we are being honored because of something great in and of ourselves. And so before honor, there must always be humility. When we convince ourselves that, you know, I'm being honored because I'm a pretty great guy, that's the opposite of humility. That's pride, which as we saw earlier, the Lord stands opposed to. So if you desire to see God work in you, and you want to see God work through you, and you even want to see the Lord honor you in your efforts to serve him, you first have to nail down the lesson of humility. You first have to learn the lesson of what it means to be a servant. So that if you ever are called to lead other people, you will do so as a servant. You must first learn to be a servant so that you can learn, or so that you, one day you'll be able to lead others. And that's a very hard lesson to learn. And many times it's a lesson that requires field experience. It's not a lesson that you can learn in a book. You can read it and you can got it down. I read Warren Wiersbe. You know, what's that book he had, the famous one? On being a servant of God. A great book. If you haven't read it, you should all read it. Small book tonight skip what you're doing read the book but it's a fantastic book it's about being a servant of God and you could say oh, I read the book I got it down I know what it means to be a servant oftentimes we don't really learn what it means to be a servant until we're thrown into the field experience and you're faced with those situations where you need to be humbled if you look through the scripture the and I didn't work my mind through every page of scripture but as I sort of quickly ran through particularly in the, the, the Old Testament, as you look through the scripture, you see those that the Lord used greatly, they first had to be humbled significantly. And so you make your way through and you look at a guy like Joseph or like Moses or David or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul, and you look at each one of these guys' lives and the Lord did use each one of them in great ways. And in some cases, you look at their life and you say, they were ready. When they were young, they were ready. Moses, man, he was raised in the palace he knew it all, the best learning. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to be a servant of God. He might have been ready to lead a nation somewhere, but not to lead God's nation. And so the Lord had to take him to reteach him for another 40 years of his life. You look at a guy like Joseph and the things that the Lord had shown Joseph, but the Lord still had to do a readying work and prepare him for the right time. David was called to lead the nation of Israel, but had to wait, I forget the number, another 30-some years, 33 years or so many of those years living in caves. I'm the anointed king of Israel. And I'm running and hiding in caves. But the Lord taught him things during that particular time. You look at Peter. Lord, all of these guys, they're going to fail you. Every one of them, but not me. They're all schmoes. I'm not. Hour or two later, he was humbled greatly. 
So much so that when he sat with the Lord and the Lord restored him, Peter essentially says, Lord, why don't you move on to somebody else more worthy of this? And I, the Lord didn't say this, but it's as if the Lord said, now you're ready to be used. You see, we learn. Humility must come before any honor. As we see here, Paul said this, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It had nothing to do with Paul's great learning and all these things that Paul could boast of in and of himself. It had to do with the work of God in Paul's life. And if God could work in a guy like me, he can work in anybody. And Paul went forward and told as many people as he possibly could. Jesus even, even Jesus modeled this truth. The book of Philippians says this. This is a passage you should memorize. It says this tonight. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. Now, you remember when Jesus, when Satan tempted Jesus? So Jesus was baptized and he was driven into the wilderness. He fasts there for 40 days and 40 nights. And toward the end of that time, Satan comes and he begins to tempt him. Three different temptations. Among those temptations is this one where Satan says to Jesus that you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down and worship me. Satan says to him, you can have it all and you can have it now. It can be yours there's no need for that humbling cross. There's no need for that suffering servant that we read about in the prophecies of the Old Testament. You can have it all now. You can rule and you can reign now. I'm prepared to give it to you. And Jesus didn't dispute that he, he was prepared to give it to him in that particular time. But he could, have had, he could have taken the easy route, avoided all of the pain, and bypassed the cross altogether. But rather than allowing himself to do that, rather than submitting himself to Satan, Rather than allowing himself to be humbled at all, he could receive the exaltation right there and right then, but he refused to do so. And again, to quote that verse in Philippians chapter uh, 2, it said, he humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him. Jesus was prepared to wait for the Lord to exalt him in the Lord's timing, that is the Father's timing. And I find this remarkable. I don't fully even understand it. But in the book of Hebrews, it says that in that whole process of things, of submitting himself and going to a cross, it says that even in that, Jesus was able to learn some things. And so it says in Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The path to honor is through humility. And if Jesus benefited from the process, how much more so you and I? Now, the question then becomes this. Will the humbling process in our lives, will it be voluntary or will it be a forced process? Will it be an elective course, if you will, that we look at and you say, you know what, as you're looking at, you're reading through the little booklet or whatever, the thing they put online that tells you what the course descriptions are, and as you're looking through it and you're saying, that one could be helpful. I want to do this with my life. I look at that. That could be helpful. That would be an elective course. And so we might look at it and say, you know what, humility would be helpful for me. I need to grow in humility. 
In other cases, though, it might have to be a mandatory course. You need to take the course on humility. I've been looking at your life. No offense, Brother Josh. Probably your brother with the Giants jersey. All righty. Is it a mandatory course that has to be forced upon you? That sounds a whole lot more painful, doesn't it? Humility. We need to be humble before we're honored. Continuing on to chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You'll notice in the first 11 verses of chapter 16, uh, the word the Lord, or the couple of words, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is used nine different times in the opening 11 verses. And here what it says is that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. There's an old Yiddish phrase that has made its way into common vernacular. Any Yiddish people here? Probably not, but you probably heard this. It says, man plans, but God laughs. Have you heard that? Man plans, but God laughs. Man may plan his thoughts in advance, but the Lord is sovereign. And we see that again. The older we get, we know that is the case. We, yep, that's been my experience. And the testimony of Scripture is as well, that the Lord's purposes are going to be accomplished one way or the other. And I think a great example of this in the Scriptures is the story of Balaam. Balaam, found in the book of Numbers, was a prophet of God. I'll use that word loosely. But he's this prophet of God. But he wasn't a very righteous individual. And if you look at his life, it seems as if Balaam really worshipped and served money, not so much the God of heaven. And so if there was an opportunity for him to make money, he was all, he was all in. All right, explain what you got. What, you're, what, what are you offering me there? His story is told in Numbers chapter 22. And it runs through Numbers 24 if you want to go back and look at his life. But long story short is you have this man, Balaam, who was hired by the enemies of Israel to curse the nation of Israel. And he repeatedly refuses to do so, but in doing so always seems to leave kind of a door open. Hey, I'm not saying no. Just come back tomorrow and we'll talk about it more. It just seems he's always leaving that door open. His actions seem to make clear that if the price is right, he'll find a way to do what is being asked of him. And so he goes with the enemies of God so that he can curse the people of God. And again, you can read the chapters on your own, but what you'll discover is while he may have had plans to do so, to curse the people of Israel, God had different plans. And since the Lord governs in the affairs of men, he changed the plans of Balaam. Read the story. It's, it's exactly what this verse is talking about here. The plans of the heart may belong to men, but the answer of the tongue, what actually occurs, belongs to the Lord. And so we submit ourselves to him and his leading in our lives, and we say, all right, Lord, I'm yours. And I think it goes with this idea, the plans of men. Lord, change my plans so that they're your plans. I don't want to run counter to you, Lord. I want to run with you. Verse 2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We saw uh, earlier that the Lord sees and knows even the thoughts, intentions, and motivations of our hearts. In fact, he knows those thoughts and intentions more clearly than we even know. Our own thoughts and intentions. Is that not amazing? That the Lord knows deeper what's going on inside of me than I even know what's going on inside of me. And the reason is, is because we are so easily self-deceived. We can deceive ourselves and thinking uh, that our, our thoughts and our ideas are pure. Notice here it says, uh, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. In our own eyes, all of our ways are pure. Even when the things that, we would, that would infuriate us, the things we do, would infuriate us if other people did them, 
if we do them, we find a, an excuse for why it's okay. And it, it, well, it's appropriate that I do so. And why? Because we're self-deceived. We don't even know what's going on in the deepest places of our own hearts, and so the Lord has to show it to us. As a general rule, we do the things that we think are right, and we think right the things that we do. And everyone else is like, what are you doing? But we're, we've convinced ourselves, no, it's okay. And the acts may be obviously evil, but somehow we persuade ourselves to the contrary. When we desire to walk in a certain way, often we figure out a way to justify that decision. And so then we say things, well, I know it's wrong to steal, but this company has been stealing for me all along. In my paycheck, every week they're dipping their hand in there, and so I'm justified in doing this. I know this woman is not my wife, but we have a connection. It's spiritual even. People will throw some malarkey out there. Forgive my language. All right. You can justify anything you want to justify. And we often do. And that's why we need to go to the one whose weights, as it says, are balanced and true. And of course, that's the Lord. It says in the verse there, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Somebody I read added, and he doesn't borrow man's balances. He has his own balances to determine. Therefore, what I think, well, I, well, I think, <laughs> it doesn't matter, what society thinks, what popular opinion polls tell us, have you seen this? They throw up polls there to basically say, if you disagree with these polls, you need to change your thinking. Because the majority of Americans now believe that none of that matters. None of it matters what I think, what society thinks, what the polls tell me. The issue is, what does the Lord think? Ever since the fall of man, it has become man's second nature to justify himself and to blame other people. Justify himself and blame other people. And this is why David would pray that prayer in which he would ask God to search him out. Search him out in the deep places of his heart to see and to reveal any area that might be grievous to the Lord. It's a verse too good. Let's read it. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. You should memorize this verse tonight again. Skip whatever you're doing. Memorize this one as well. We should all memorize this verse. Do it tomorrow if you need to. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Make this the prayer you begin every quiet time with. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't it a song or something? So sometimes it's easier to memorize a verse in song. Learn, get the song, find it where it is and learn it there. But that's what we need to do. Like David, we need to pray that prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Allowing the Lord to weigh not only our actions, because many of us get our actions together. And sometimes we get it together just because we're getting older. And so I don't go out clubbing anymore. I never really did. But I don't go out clubbing anymore because I'm too tired. Not because Jesus is doing a work within me. I have to go to work in the morning, and I, I know that I, you know, so that, you don't get credit for that, all right? It's not just your actions, but you want the Lord to, to weigh even your inner motivations. And when we allow him to do that, and then we respond accordingly when he begins to put his finger on certain areas of life, that's where growth is happening. That's the idea of learning from our mistakes and responding appropriately to the Lord's correction and reproof. Amen? Verse 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The idea of established is a foundation, a firm foundation. You can build a lot on that, and so on. And the best way 
to ensure that your hopes, your dreams, and your plans will be established is to commit those hopes, dreams, and plans to the Lord. Now, that's both before, during, and after the carrying out of those plans. And so sometimes some of us, we just want to do whatever we want. I'm going to do whatever I want and say, Lord, I give it to you now. Wait a minute. You didn't even ask my opinion about what you wanted to do is how the Lord might respond. And so we have to ask the Lord before, during, and after the carrying out of those plans is to commit those things to the Lord. So if you want your plans to be established, the goal of your life, where am I going to go with my life? If you want that to be established, first, you have to come to the Lord for his guidance in drawing up those plans. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? You have to come to him first for guidance in drawing up those plans. You can't expect the Lord's blessing on your endeavors if you leave him out of the drawing up process. He has to be a part of that process. Secondly, then, you have to be sure to keep him involved in that process. There's a little booklet that's out there. It's called The Lord's Work uh, Done the Lord's Way. The Lord's work must be done according to the Lord's way. Because the Lord will not establish your plans if in doing so, you have to cut all sorts of corners and engage in practices that he cannot bless. And so before and then also during, you have to commit your ways to the Lord. And then finally, as your endeavors are drawing to a close and they're about to be established and certified, don't think that that's time to leave the Lord out of the process either. And too often, that's what we do. Too often, people will move through steps one and two very nicely, and they're giving it over to the Lord and asking him his direction and entrusting him to do it his way and according to his ways and so on, only to come to the final step and take all the credit for the process. So he drew up the plans. He strengthened and enabled you to carry out the plans, and now you get all the credit? Well, that doesn't make any sense either, right? And so we commit our work to the Lord and our plans will be established. That's before, that's during, and that is after. Now, I think there's also more here as well, and it's what Paul will reference for a different purpose, but the idea is still the same. Paul will say, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Oftentimes we begin where we need to be, but then we kind of slide God over from the driver's seat and we begin to take the wheel. I'm going to sing a song for you, Jesus Take the Wheel. It's, it's moving to me. I'm just kidding. It would move a lot of you right out the door. All right. But we sort of drive God out. He said, I'll take over, Lord, from here. And when that happens, I, in my mind, I pictured the Lord. like, okay, you can drive. He just sort of back, go ahead. You can drive and see how we do. That's a mistake. It's a decision that doesn't typically end very well. And so we begin with the Lord, we continue with the Lord, and we We bring it to a close with the Lord as well. Verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trial. This proverb means simply that God has an end, an object, and a purpose for everything. That all things work together for the glory of God. God will accomplish his purposes in one way or another, and his plans will not be thwarted. Now that can be very disconcerting for the one that's outside of the will of God. But that's incredibly comforting for the one that is seeking to align their life with his will, that the Lord's purposes will be accomplished in each of our lives that are seeking to do that. Verse 5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. As we saw earlier, the Lord hates human pride. Here now, it uses the word abomination. Remember that word is a word which means that he is disgusted by something. The Lord is disgusted by our pride. It's an abomination for him. 
And for the person that hangs on to the arrogance of his heart, the person that refuses to bend their knee to the only one worthy to have their, a knee bent to, the punishment will surely come, as this verse says here. And the only one to be blamed for when you are being punished or that person is being punished will be that person themselves. The Lord finds pride, arrogance of heart, and abomination. He detests it. And all who walk in it will be broken by it. How much better to bow now in repentance. Amen? Verse 6 says this, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord one turns away from evil. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now you want to be careful with this. This is not saying that a person's sins will be forgiven. That's what atoned for speaks to if they exhibit steadfast love and faithfulness. So this isn't saying if you're a nice guy and you're honest and truthful and you show mercy to other people, your sins will be forgiven and you will get to go to heaven. Obviously, that would contradict the multitude of other verses in Scripture that make clear that salvation is not the result of anything we do, but that it is faith in the work that Christ alone has done. The atonement is made for iniquity. That is made for iniquity that is being spoken of here by steadfast love and faithfulness. That's speaking to as far as putting putting things right with man is concerned. And so putting things right in my relationship with others. And so if someone has sinned against me or if I have sinned against another, what is going to bring us back into harmony with one another is steadfast love and faithfulness. Or as the King James says, it's mercy and it is truth. It's those things that are going to heal brokenness and bring a covering for one's sins. If you're in a family situation, maybe I guess if you live with a bunch of people in a a dorm-type situation where there's a bunch of people living there, you know you're going to sin against one another. You're going to wrong one another. You're going to say something, do something, respond in a particular way, in a wrong way. You're going to sin against one another. And what brings a covering for that sin are things like truth and mercy. Now, as far as our sin against the holy God being atoned for, that can only happen and has only happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's at the cross of Christ that both truth and mercy had to meet. Because truth alone, faithfulness, as the ESV says here, that would certainly honor God's law, but it would destroy all that had violated God's law. And mercy alone would shield transgressors Because rather than being punished for their sin, they would be able to experience mercy. But that would make a mockery of the law of God. And so only at the cross does both truth and mercy is that on display. As the sinless one, prompted by his love, paid for the sin, sinful ones who had no power to pay their own price. Truth and love, truth and mercy meet there at the cross and may the Lord be praised. Verse 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. During the years leading up to the Civil War and the election of Abraham Lincoln, there was an official uh, in the United States, his name was Edwin Stanton. And he was sort of one of these life, he, he wasn't really elected to many positions, but he served in high government positions a lot during his career. And his writings can attest that he despised Abraham Lincoln. Again, this is the years leading up to the election of Lincoln, that he despised Abraham Lincoln, and he treated Abraham Lincoln with utter contempt, quite frankly, very publicly. Let people know what he thought of him. He referred to Clinton, uh, Clinton, Lincoln, sorry, he referred to Lincoln as a clown. He referred to him as the original gorilla. 
And he even went so far as to say this, that there was no need for Americans to go to Africa to capture a gorilla because one was available in Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln lived. Those are fighting words. Would you call me? I'm coming down there. I'm, with I'm seven foot tall. You know, okay. And he was a wrestling champion. Do you know that about Lincoln? He was a wrestling was the term where they locked arms and they would throw each other or whatever. He was a chick because he had eight foot arms or whatever, you know. But anyhow, Abraham Lincoln. Now, later on, so here's this guy. Obviously, he doesn't like Lincoln. He's treating him poorly, kind of his enemy, if you will. Later on, when Lincoln was elected president, remarkably, rather than retaliate against Stanton or even just write him off. Well, that guy. Yeah, I know that, you know, this, but the things he said about me. He named him his Secretary of War, which I just find to be remarkable. And people are like, what are you doing? You can't name this if, you know, he disrespected you. And if people know that, they'll disrespect you. And Lincoln's response was simply this. He's the best man for the job. And so he hires this guy that was, if you will, his enemy. And then I find this for the purpose of our verse here. Four years later, when Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton was standing there beside Lincoln's bed where he had just died. And he said this of Lincoln. He said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. And the, the point that I'm obviously getting at is this. Lincoln had won over his enemy's affection, so to speak. When a man's ways please the Lord, and I think we can say that of Abraham Lincoln. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so when we're pleasing the Lord or seeking to please the Lord, even our enemies are influenced by that. They're going to look, they may look, they might say this against you or that against you, but none of those accusations can stick. You remember the book of Daniel when all of the officials were uh, railing on Daniel? And people were just like, what are you talking about? That's not Daniel. And the only thing they could get against him was, well, he prays all the time. <laughs> That's the worst thing they could bring against him. All right? A holy, humble walk, it silences even our adversaries is the promise of Scripture. You don't have to defend your cause, essentially. Let the Lord take up your cause. Verse 8 says this, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness. Integrity of heart. Better than thousands in silver and gold. Many people would doubt that. I'd like to test that out to see if that's the case. Integrity of heart is better than thousands in silver and gold. You can trust the scripture for that. David wrote this in Psalm 84. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's better to be amongst the lowest of society and be right with God than to reign among those that are far from God. And Henry Ironside, one of my favorite uh, commentators, he said, a bear living with the mind and heart at rest and a walk in accordance with righteous principles is infinitely to be preferred to a large income coupled with covetousness and unholy practices. Henry Ironside, Isaiah the prophet, more significant than Henry Ironside. But Isaiah said this, the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And there is nothing more valuable than that peace and that quietness and that assurance that Isaiah references. And so we pursue those things. Our last verse, verse nine, it says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Same idea as verse one. Despite the fact that people commonly think that they're having their own way, the reality is that the Lord is leading, the Lord is ever directing their steps and accomplishing his purposes. An example of this you might spend some time meditating on this week is the story of Ruth and Naomi that's recorded for us in the book called The Book of Ruth. 
And you look at that book, and despite all the circumstances and the twists and the turns, the Lord's will was accomplished through and through. So much so that the very line of the Messiah runs through this woman, Ruth. Coincidence? Come on. As the Jewish rabbis say, coincidence is not kosher. Isn't that what you always say, Baron? Coincidence is not kosher. No, it's not coincidence. The Lord was at work and he was accomplishing his purposes. And so whether you yield to your flesh and experience the consequences that God says will come for having done so, or you yield to the leading of the Spirit and experience his blessing that he says will be yours for doing so, either way, the Lord's purposes are carried out. And as we saw back in verse 1, we continually bring ourselves to the Lord. We draw up our plans to empower the carrying out of those plans. And then we establish those plans for his purpose and for his glory, not for our own. And in those ways, the Lord is honored and his purposes are fulfilled. Amen? I want to just leave you with this. I think a very practical thing that you can do now, well, how do I know if all of my ways, even the thoughts and intents of my heart, sometimes I just do things and, you know, I, I get through my day. Perhaps for a period of time, maybe this next week or so, if at the end of your day, you just took some time to kind of run through your day and the things you did, and the reasons why you did them. So you ask the Lord, search out my heart, Lord, what was my motivation behind why I said that, or why I stood up at that time and did that particular thing? And you just went half hour by half hour, hour by hour by hour, and you committed each of those ways to the Lord, and you asked the Lord to search out each of those ways, and then you make that the pattern of your life. The Lord is going to impact your heart in those particular areas. And he's going to put his fingers on, finger on certain areas of your life and challenge you. You know what? You shouldn't have said that when you said it. And challenge you in that way. He was going to say, hey, that was great, and it looked really good, and everybody was impressed. But I couldn't help but notice. And the Lord will call out your thoughts, your intents, your motivations. And he'll take you through that process. And you do that for the rest of your life, not just for this week. And gradually, as you continue to walk with the Lord, those times will be less and less and less and less that he has to put his finger on because you'll be growing in your walk with the Lord. And that's what we want, isn't it? And so perhaps that's a practical thing that you might be able to do that the Lord can use in your life. But we want the Lord to be honored. We want his purposes to be fulfilled. And so we submit even the thoughts and intentions of our heart to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the anchor of your word. And Lord, we know that uh, we can have hearts that go astray even. And they trick us and they deceive us. And we think uh, it all makes sense. It's appropriate. It's logical. Uh, how could we do anything differently? And yet, Lord, uh, we've, we've fooled ourselves. And Lord, we don't want that to be the case. We want people whose lives are honoring to you. We want people whose lives people can look at and they could be pointed to the Savior for the work that you've done within us. And so, Lord, we, we pray the prayer of David. Lord, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Root out any area of iniquity that might be within us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let me pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com. 
or download the church app to your phone.